And we're back again. Another edition of Radio Free Acton hits the web. The voice of the Acton Institute, and I'm your host, Mark Vandermoss. Glad to have you along once again as we bring a little bit of uh, theological and moral reflection to bear on some of the big issues of the day. It's been a big week in politics, uh, a couple of big, huge stories. We're going to tackle one of those. Um, we're looking at Barack Obama this week, and more specifically, we're looking at Barack Obama's church. And, of course, the it's been all over the news. Dr. Jeremiah Wright, the pastor of the Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, which is Barack Obama's home church and has been for about 20 years, I think, and it's caused quite a stir in the world of politics. Of course, Obama, one of the two leading contenders for the presidency on the uh, Democratic side of the uh, aisle, anyways. And here to talk about it today, we've got a, an all-star crew. First of all, in studio, uh, Ray Notstein joins us again. Ray, an associate editor here at the Institute. Thanks for having me, Mark. And uh, we're pleased to be joined for the first time in studio by the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, Father Robert Sirico. Glad to have you here today, Father Robert. Good to be with you. Uh, what a lovely studio you have, too. Yeah, well, uh, you, you <laughs> referred to it earlier as a cave. Yes. Well, I, I, I accept <laughs> that description. And uh, joining us on the phone uh, once again, uh, his second time on the podcast, from St. Louis, Missouri, uh, Anthony Bradley, an Acton Research Fellow and Professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. Anthony, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you along. And uh, why don't we throw it right to you, Anthony? First of all, people might not be very familiar with the whole concept of black liberation theology. Can you give us a little bit of a history? What What are we dealing with here? What exactly is this uh, intellectual concept that we're, we're we're talking about? Yeah, very very briefly, in the late 1960s, uh, particularly uh, among black pastors in in urban areas, there was some consensus and frustration with the fact that mainline Protestant denominations weren't saying much on race. And there were a few theologians, one mainly James Cone, uh, who now teaches at Union Seminary in, in New York City. Uh, he was raised in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, which is one of the largest black denominations and the oldest black denominations in the, in the country started in the late, late 1700s. Uh, Dr. Cone and other black uh, pastors uh, had several meetings and decided to come with a theology that that, that specifically dealt with uh, the black experience in America coming out of the civil rights movement. Now, basically, they redescribed the gospel and Christianity in terms of God coming to rescue the oppressed, and more specifically, uh, those who have been oppressed due to their race. Now, this particular theology began to grow, and there lots of theologians now who, who teach it at the several black seminaries in the country. It mainly took hold in black mainline churches, and so the kind of preaching and teaching that we see uh, in, with Jeremiah Wright, it comes from that generation, uh, is the kind of preaching that you, you, you actually hear in several uh, black mainline denomination churches uh, who have pastors who are of that generation. Yeah, it's 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 sort of surprising to hear you say that in, in a sense, Anthony, in that it's the message when it comes across on these mainstream media outlets to to folks who who haven't been exposed to this thing. It sounds so uh, racial and so different from, I guess, you know, for, from my experience, what the gospel would normally be preached as in in any church anywhere. Well, it it it, it comes out of a lot of of anger and and frustration and and pain. Mm -hmm. uh, that particular generation, these guys, I mean, uh, Wright's probably 60, I think he's 66 years old. Uh, that particular generation in the U.S. grew up under Jim Crow. Uh, they witnessed the civil rights transitions and, 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 and many of the things that came out of that. 
And so uh, there are a lot of uh, folks in that age bracket who are preaching, who still have deep memories of, uh, of racial segregation and the movement in general, and that, and that comes through their preaching. I think what, what we see now is that the mainstream media has been so disconnected from this side of the black church that they're in shock that someone would be saying this. But, I mean, I've been telling people this is the kind of preaching that I heard in my all-black, very large United Methodist Church in Atlanta when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Father Robert, I want to turn to you. Uh, when we hear the term liberation theology, in this case it's black liberation theology, um, one of the first things that pops to mind is the liberation theology that was so prevalent in Central and, and even South America in the 80s. Uh, what are the similarities between black liberation theology and the more commonly known the liberation theology that we, we've dealt with in the past? Well, it was also very prominent here in the United States. It had uh, quite a um, an influence, for instance, in 1986 in the American Catholic Bishops Pastoral on Economic Justice for All. So it's not just a, a Latin American phenomenon. Uh, I think some of the themes, um, broadly speaking, are very similar. The theme of deliverance, of oppression, of uh, the Exodus story as part of the whole metaphor. Of course, you find this in Martin Luther King long before any of uh, this form of liberation theology. It would be interesting to hear from Anthony uh, their take on uh, King and his, especially the early King, his kind of more natural law approach to uh, these kinds of questions. Um, so in some sense, it's, it's a, um, a, a similar endeavor. I think what is different, of course, obviously, is the particular sociological uh, and political context. In Latin America, you're dealing with, uh, at that time, they, the way they described it was the uh, history from the underside uh, and uh, the tension between um, the dominance of the North and the um, kind of dependency theory that was very popular in those days that said that the North, the, the richer countries, basically drew their sustenance from the poorer nations in the South. Uh, I think there'd be a parallel here, too, if my, my guess is correct. What is not quite as prevalent here and concerns me um, in what I've heard of Pastor Wright's, Dr. Wright's um, articulations, is the um, fascination he appears to have with uh, conspiracy theories. Mm, yeah. The whole notion of AIDS being an invention of uh, the United States or uh, the theories that we've heard about 9-11. These are, are some twists uh, in the narrative that are somewhat different. Also the connection to uh, Farrakhan, and I'm in particular referring here to the notion of this autarky, or what is called in economics autarky, which is to say that uh, the, the the white version of it is by american mm. uh, yes uh, Farrakhan's version of it is by black and this is basically a rejection of the division of labor uh, if there's any one thing about the free market that is so advantageous to uh, the poor and racial minorities in particular is the way in which a free economy breaks down the relevance of race and just places everything 
in a market analysis and asks people to trade on the basis of their productive capacity and not their race or their origin, ethnicity, and other mm -hmm. things. I want to turn that question. You, you, you mentioned, Father Robert, what would these folks, what would Jeremiah Wright think of, of Martin Luther King? And I want to turn that question back to Anthony or to, uh, to you, Ray. I know that, Ray, you brought some, some thoughts on, on the uh, black liberation theologians and the civil rights movement, right. the early civil rights movement. Well, Anthony mentioned that there's um, a difference in terms of Wright and obviously um, how they would view kind of... I think the main thing that you see that's different is... Wright's not speaking for an audience, uh, a large audience. King was appealing to, you know, he wanted to appeal to white uh, moderates, and that was one of the effective things that the civil rights movement did. Uh, Wright's pre preaching to a church. He has some uh, held over anger from that era. And King's movement, especially early on, was specifically pitched to a lot of uh, white moderates. And there's a good book, Keith D. Miller, Voices of Deliverance, and it talks about how King borrows from the Declaration of Independence. He borrows from not just black preachers, historical black preachers, but he borrows from white preachers. He's speaking the language of a lot of white moderates across America, and that's where he was very successful. And the letter from uh, the Birmingham jail is Thomas Aquinas. Right. So it's it's really very interesting, the roots there, and then the roots seems, seem to uh, shift a little. There's, there's definitely an early king and a late king and I recently heard Jeremiah Wright in an interview uh, talking about King, and he was really talking about the, the later King, who was a lot more radical, and it actually moves closer to the kinds of rhetoric that, that Malcolm X uh, had, had, had espoused earlier on in his, in his public career as well. And the, 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 I think, you know, for, for, for many in, in the black church, even in the 60s, the late 60s and through the 70s, I mean, there are people who believe that King's rhetoric didn't go far enough, uh, that it wasn't radical enough. And if you read a lot of early black liberation theologians, there are many who thought that uh, King sort of soft-pedaled on some issues and, and didn't take advantage of his platform to really drive home the point. And sadly, a lot of those uh, uh, pastors and theologians sought to raise up a generation of black politicians out of the church to go in to use government as a, as a leverage for expanding power. And that's when the black liberation theologians, especially with James Cone and Colonel West, decided to, on purpose, I mean, they were explicitly uh, uh, decided to use Marxism as the ethical framework for, for black liberation theology, and they sought to bring Marxism into the church and attempt, which you can't do, uh, to biblically justify it. And, uh, you know, to, to kind of elaborate on this point, uh, this philosophical shift to the state results in an institutional shift so that the, um, the main leaders in the black community who had been ministers and then uh, lawyers and doctors and dentists and, and what have you now begin to shift to the politicians, to the bureaucratic class, and that's why you have this uh, relatively new hybrid of the black preacher as politician. I'm thinking of Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and a myriad of others, uh, lesser, lesser lights. And there, then there is a further sociological consequence to this because now you have in the black community 
Well, perhaps not now. I think perhaps Anthony will will make the case, and and I'll invite you to do that. But a disdain for the entrepreneurial class. Now, let's say the next generation might be reappreciating the entrepreneur, the role of entrepreneur in the black community. Right. There, there has been, and, and this, and of course, you saw this late seventies or the eighties. I mean, there was this strange, really odd, new. Uh, disdain for the entrepreneur when in fact that person has always been a hero in the black community and as soon as Marxism began to infect the black consciousness especially within the context of church Mm -hmm. people began to adopt this class warfare mentality and I think that's one of the reasons why the conspiracy theories are beginning uh, to have more, more, more plates. If you read Dwight Hopkins' book, An Introduction to Black Liberation Theology, he teaches that at uh, the, the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. He's, he's James Cone's uh, heir apparent to the, to the movement. I mean, he recently wrote that, that Coca-Cola is actually changing, attempting to change the taste buds of Africans so that they desire their product over their own native drinks. I mean, and so this is the kind of of uh, fanatical rhetoric that that has been infused in the in the church because of an attempt to justify Marxism. Uh, and I thought uh, uh, restaurateurs have been doing that to all of us for years. <laughs> uh, that's the nature of good cooking or or drinks or anything you know in in the market to compete for a market share, as though this was something sinister. Right, and it it, it actually change it actually turns preferences on its head. I mean, it, it actually is very sad way to, to, to actually denigrate the humanity and dignity of, of Africans is yes. that they can't choose on their own right. uh, what they want. And, and black liberation theology has turned into a system that, that, that reduces the human person to victim and then reinterprets their reality such that they are no longer human uh, because they, they are no longer able to make decisions for themselves they need surrogates to make decisions uh, uh, for them, and this is all in, at least in their circles, in the name of, uh, of good theology, but you won't find that, that sort of plat- platform in the Gospels anywhere. Anthony, I'd like to ask one more question here. We're running out of time, but I, I, this dissent, I, I guess I'd call it a dissent into conspiracy mongering the, the, with the, uh, the example that you gave about Coca-Cola with Reverend Wright's talk about the AIDS virus and whatnot and uh, the uh, 9-11 conspiracies. Is that an indication that this if philosophy is, is wasting away intellectually, or is, it, is, is this a turn for the worse, or are we, are we seeing this sort of die out? Well, I, I, think, I think it's actually generational more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my, my parents' generation, they're in their mid to late 60s, and they fundamentally embrace a lot of these conspiracy theories as if there, there is a meeting of the great white man uh, that has a convention or something somewhere in America who decides ways to oppress uh, racial minorities and women. And that, that's actually a, more mainstream than, than people realize and hasn't been challenged a lot, I think, because it hasn't been exposed. And I think that this is good that we can sort of for the first time maybe in a while see the sort of rhetoric and preaching that goes on in the religious left. The religious left is as radical uh, and, and, and fundamental as, as, as other types of, of, of liberals on several issues, and they haven't been exposed, and, and, and maybe this... This particular episode will help us see some of the truth in those circles as well. 
Anthony Bradley, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Same to you, Father Robert. Hope you'll be back uh, many times on the podcast. I'd enjoy it. I'll visit the cave anytime you invite. Excellent. And Ray as well, thank you uh, you. for, for joining us today. You are listening to Radio Free Acton, the voice of the Acton Institute. I am Mark Vandermoss, your host, and once again, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. If you're not a subscriber to the podcast, you can do so at our website, www.acton.org, or just head on over to iTunes if you're an iTunes user. Open up the iTunes store, do a quick search for Acton Institute, and you'll be able to subscribe and have the new editions of the podcast delivered to your computer automatically couple of events coming up that I want to let you know about. First of all, the Acton Lecture Series continues on April 10th. That's next month. Noon is the time. St. Cecilia Music Center in downtown Grand Rapids is the location, and the topic is going to be health care. Now, at the end of the day, the levers of power over health care decisions are going to be controlled either by individuals and their families based upon their values, faith, and moral guidance, or by centralized bureaucracies, either public or private. Now, when the state controls the system... It interrupts the principle of subsidiarity, or if you prefer, sphere sovereignty, which is not usurping the proper functions of the individual, the family, the community, and the doctor-patient relationship. Now, Mrs. Grace Marie Turner argues that the United States can lead the way to developing a healthcare system that meets the challenges of this century. We can demonstrate how free market solutions can create a healthcare system that supports individual freedom over healthcare decisions and that moves us closer to the goal of advancing the common good by respecting the dignity, freedom, and sanctity of human life. Grace Marie Turner is the founder and president of the Galen Institute. That's a public policy research organization that promotes informed debate of free market ideas for health reform, and she will be bringing some of that informed debate to us right here in Grand Rapids. The date, once again, April 10th at noon, St. Cecilia Music Center, at 24 Ransom Northeast in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you're interested in attending, go to www.acton.org and you can register. Just click on the link for that lecture and you can register online. Those lectures fill up pretty fast. You'll get lunch, you'll get an interesting, stimulating talk, and uh, it's all good in that way. One other event that's coming up in April, Thursday, April 17th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at the Wealthy Street Theater in Grand Rapids, Michigan. There will be an evening lecture with Dr. Jay Richards. The topic, what should Christians think about global warming? Now, in the lecture, Dr. Richards is going to explore the biblical foundations for our stewardship over the environment and its importance in global warming. He's also going to discuss mainstream views on global warming and answer four of the main questions concerning global climate change. And these are very good questions. The first one is, is the earth warming? After you answer that question, you go on to, are we causing it? After you answer that question, then we go on to, if the Earth is warming and we're causing it, is that bad? And the final question is, would the uh, proposed policies, such as the Kyoto Protocol and other efforts to stop global warming, make any difference at all? Good questions that all need answers, and uh, it'll be a good evening of discussion at the Wealthy Street Theater, 1130 Wealthy Southeast in Grand Rapids, Michigan. If you want to register, once again, www. .acton.org. You can register online. Tickets are $10 for adults, $5 for students. That's all the time we have today. Thank you for joining us once again. The mission of the Acton Institute is to promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. For more information on the programs and initiatives of the Acton Institute, visit our website, www.acton.org. 
www.actonpublic.org or check out our blog at blog.actonpublic.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Radio Free Active. Step, 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 step.